Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. Amen. If you have your Bible open to the book of Nehemiah, since October 23rd, you've had the opportunity to read through this book and to be praying through this book as we are looking toward November 21st as our in-gathering day for an offering to help further along the reconstruction of the gym and rebuilding the gym after Hurricane Harvey. And uh, it is one last piece to the puzzle. Um, it's got a great history, a great heritage, and we want to keep that uh, ministry alive and well. Um, and so we're looking through Nehemiah for the next uh, three Sundays. And then on the 21st, we will have one service together uh, on that day, and we will follow that with lunch together um, as we celebrate what God is doing here at Coastal Oaks on that day. And then after that, Advent. I love Advent. Advent is where we celebrate and think through the coming of the Christ child at Christmas. We have some cool things planned for the Advent season, and uh, we'll talk about that more as we get closer. But for now, we are in the book of Nehemiah. You've seen these shows on TV where they take something that's old or dilapidated or beyond its use. Um, maybe it's an old car rusted throughout in the pasture somewhere, or it's an old house that just seems to be in disrepair and, and, and is not livable, uh, and they make a TV show about it. Uh, put it on HGTV or Discovery or, or DIY Network, any of these uh, things. Uh, my father-in-law happens to like this old house. I think that may have been one of the first ones around. Um, but uh, we could even make a sitcom out of it, Home Improvement. You remember that show? Anyway, I enjoy watching particularly the cars. I'm not a mechanic, and so I really get fascinated. I'm not a, I'm not a builder either. I'm not a handyman on it, so maybe the house. But anyway, I love the cars. I love watching the old rust buckets come in. They're, they're, they're shinier than when they first began. They've got a bigger engine. They go faster with more power. All the things that we love as men, and I, really, I just really am captivated uh, and how an artist can take that and make it. Uh, that just has always fascinated me, to take something that's ruined and make something beautiful out of it. That's what we find in the book of Nehemiah. That's Nehemiah's story. Um, when we look at chapter one, starting in verse one, we, we see a man who is in a, in a position. God has put him in a very key position. He's given him a passion and he's going to call Nehemiah out to fulfill his purpose back in Jerusalem. And I find, I find a lot of joy in this story. Um, I find a lot of um, excitement and how God is in the business of restoring things that are broken down. And that is the story of all of our life. He is in, the build, he's in Christ. He's in the business of rebuilding us. And so uh, I would invite you to stand with me as I read from Nehemiah chapter 1, starting in verse 1 through verse 4. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. During the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, 
arrived with men from Judah, and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. They said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of the heavens. Let's pray together. Father, as we come into your word this morning, I pray that what we do not know, you would teach us. Father, what we do not have, you would provide for us. And what we are not, you would make us for your glory and our good. Father, we come to you with the understanding that a great storm hit our community four years ago and that we are still in the rebuilding phase. Father, we'll just be honest, we'd like to be done with that. And so God, we're gonna look to you for that provision to help us get there. In the meantime, Lord, let this three-week season not be about a building, but more importantly, how you take our hearts and our lives that are broken down and restore them, repurpose us for your glory and your honor. Father, thank you so much for Jesus Christ. For it is in Christ that we find our calling, our salvation, and our purpose in this life. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. There are lots of folks out there that are in the business of repurposing junk. As I said, some people can just see something and they think, wow, I could make that into this. And I'm thinking, how? How do you take a piano and make it an aquarium? (laughs) Whoever thought of that, I don't know. I don't know. Why don't just make it into a piano again? I I mean, this is the way my mind thinks, but there are lots of people who have that gift, and it amazes me, because I don't have that gift. But when we think about the repurposing, the restoration, all the things of physical items that we, we can think of, we can think of the cost of redoing that, the cost in time, the cost in money, the, the cost of effort, maybe some blood and some sweat and probably a few tears along the way. When we look at Nehemiah and he receives the news of Jerusalem, the people in Jerusalem, the remnant that, that are there that have survived, they're in trouble and they're disgraced. I mean, we didn't come to church today thinking, I want to be a part of a troubled and disgraced people, right? Just like we don't pray, God ruined me today, like Isaiah 6. We don't don't come thinking like that. But there 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 is news of, of the remnant that have survived exile. They're in great trouble. They're in disgrace. And then he gets news of the walls of Jerusalem are broken down. They're in ruin. And the walls, the gates, the gates have been burned might seem like an impossible task from Nehemiah's point of view. He's in the the fortress city of of Susa. He's never really been to Jerusalem. He he knows about it. He's a Jew. He knows that's that's home, but 
They've been so long in exile, he's not been there. But the home, his home is in ruins, and that breaks his heart. This might seem like an impossible task for man. In fact, when he gets there, there are, there are some outsiders that will come in and, and attack and, and, and just try to help, uh, try to get the people that he's using to rebuild the wall to think that this is absolutely impossible for them to accomplish. But what we remember about this story is that we're in the middle of God's story and God is moving the story, the people, his people along to the time when Jesus the Messiah would come, when he would make his appearance on earth to die for our sin and to redeem us by the blood of the cross and the power of the resurrection. And so as Nehemiah is called out, we need to remember that what seems impossible with man is always possible with God. So long as it's his purpose and it's his will, it is absolutely possible with God, always. And what is more important in Nehemiah, once we're done reading through it, and by the way, if you would like to get the prayer journal, there's some hard copies out in the Welcome Center. They're also online at at coastaloakschurch.org. You can find that there. I'd encourage you to pick it up and and jump in and start praying with us if you have not. But what we're going to find is more than the walls being rebuilt is that God is after the hearts of his people. He is going to turn their hearts back to him. That's what God is after. And the people will return to their first love. You see, more than the walls, the people's heart needed restoration. The people's lives needed to be repurposed, needed to be restored. They needed that transformation so they could offer worship and receive the protection that they would need from their enemies. And so before we talk about raising walls, or our case, gym walls, over the next two weeks, specifically while the Texas Baptist men are here helping us, we need to make sure, church, that we are loving God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, with all of our being. And from Nehemiah's perspective, God has shown him how life should be in Jerusalem, that God's people are in trouble, that God's people are disgraced, and that God is calling Nehemiah out to take the necessary steps to correct that serious problem. So let's look at this together. I want you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 9 because we need to know the context of how they got to this place. Once you understand the context of how they got to this place in exile, the story makes a little more sense. So because we're not going to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, we're going to Nehemiah chapter 9. Because what in Nehemiah chapter 9 is a national confession of sin. It's a retelling of the story, the history of Israel and Judah. And what you find there is God's faithfulness all over, and yet the people are disobedient. The time period of Nehemiah is somewhere around 445 BC. There's been like 140 years since King Nebuchadnezzar came and took Jerusalem. That happened in 586 BC. You can find Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You'll, you'll, you might remember those stories. But Nehemiah is brought up in a, in a foreign land. 
Nehemiah chapter 9 highlights that history for us. It's a sad story from a human perspective. It's a sad story of how quickly we turn away from God, how quickly we will chase idols of our own making and pursue things that are not God, how quickly we will give our our love and our affection and our attention to things that are not God, and yet we will also see the good news of how patient, gracious, and merciful God is, even when we are disobedient. And though our story will have different events, if you look close enough in the story of Nehemiah, you'll find there the truth that is right and good and true for your life. Because in our time, as time moves along, technology changes. I mean, all of the things that we've experienced, some of you have experienced a little bit more than others. But in all of that, there's one thing that remains true in the 21st century, and it was true back in 445 BC and 586 BC, is that the human heart is the same. Our soul, our spirit is to say, it is in desperate need of grace and mercy. The prophet Jeremiah said that our hearts are deceitful above anything else. Who can understand it? It was true then, it's still true today. So as we look at that national confession of sin in, in, in chapter nine, here's how they got to this point. In chapter eight, Ezra has stood before the people on a platform much like this. Quite a few more... More people than this. But he stands, and what does he do? He reads from the scroll. He reads from the word of God. And as he reads from the word of God, the people of God are cut to the heart. You want to know what the Bible is good for? It's good for showing you where your heart is and piercing deep down in there to where the sin is and digging it out and doing some surgery on you. That's what God's word is good for. And so as Ezra reads from the word of God, the people are cut to the heart And there's a great awareness of their sin. Thus we get to chapter 9. This is their response. And as as they're reading, the people are standing. This is why I have you stand every Sunday when we read the word of God. They confess him as God and God alone. Look at verse 5 of Nehemiah chapter 9. They say, stand up and bless Blessed be the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name. May it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You, Lord, are the only God. You created the heavens, the highest heavens, with all their stars and the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and all the stars of heaven worship you. You, the Lord, are the God who chose Abram. We'll stop right there for just a moment, but... They go back to the beginning, creation, when God spoke everything into being. And he created everything from nothing. They confess him as God and God alone, that there is no other. That's a, that's a good start because that's, that's the heart of their problem. For Israel and Judah and even for us today, they are constantly turning to idols and other false gods along the way. Constantly giving their love and their affection, their attention to other gods and not serving the one true God and obeying him. But in verse seven, they begin to praise God for his work. What work is that? Well, when he called Abram, who becomes Abraham. Abraham is a man that trusted God and he trusted in God's promises. And there's a reminder in verse eight of God's faithfulness that he keeps his promise to to Abraham. 
Look at verse 8. He says, you found his heart. He's talking about Abraham. You found his heart faithful in your sight and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites. That's the promised land. That's Jerusalem. That's where Nehemiah wants to be. The end of verse 8, he says, you have fulfilled your promise for you are righteous. They're coming back into this place where their hearts are centered once again on God and they realize that he is the God that keeps his promises. Then the story moves in verse 9 to what we might call the time of Egypt. We skipped some stories there between Abraham and Egypt, but you can go back in Genesis and read it. But in verse 9, he says, you saw the oppression of our ancestors in Egypt. Pharaoh was a cruel taskmaster at that point. They were slaves to Egypt. And he heard, God heard their cry. He heard their plea for help, and he called up and raised up Moses for such a time as that. And Moses, through, through God's guidance, led the people of God out of Egypt. By the time you get to verse 15, and we'll skip several verses here, but I mean, in that story of, of Moses and the escape from Egypt is the, the Red Sea splitting. They walked through on dry land. You've got the, the, the manna and the quail and, and the water. God's constant provision in the wilderness as he's moving his people forward to this place called the promised land through the wilderness journeys. At the end of verse 15, he he says, you told them to go in and possess the land you had sworn to give them. This is God's promise. This land is for you. Now go in and take it. And look at what happens in verse 16. Our ancestors acted arrogantly and they became stiff-necked and did not listen to your commands. This is why their hearts need to be restored. This is why they need God's grace and his mercy. Because listen, arrogance never works with God. The heart of a Jesus follower is not arrogant and prideful. It's humble. Arrogance never works with God. But verse 17, we see once again, as they refused to listen and did not remember your wonders you performed among them, they had forgotten how they, God delivered them through the Red Sea. All of the things. They had forgotten this. And then you hear it at the end of verse 17, but you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, and you did not abandon them. Do you see how great our God is? This greatness draws us back to him and will draw his people back to him in this, by the end of this chapter. Verse 22 through 25 is the time of Joshua when God raises up Joshua to follow Moses. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. By the end of Joshua's life, that's his, that's his stance. That's where, he, that's where he stakes his claim in following the Lord. And the people go in and take the land. In verse 26 and 20 through 28, it's the time of the judges. You can find the book by that very name, the book of the judges. This is where we find stories like Samson and Gideon and Deborah, okay? But the time of the judges is an awful time of, of a, there's a pattern there, a pattern of sin and judgment and repentance, Deliverance. The people sin. They turn away from God and start chasing those foreign idols again. God brings judgment, which is oppression from an outside source, from an outside people group. The people can only take it so long and they cry out in repentance and they come back to God and then he sends the judge, a deliverer, to free them. But it's just an endless cycle. And you know what's happening in the book of Judges? If you read quickly, you'll hear a phrase There was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Man, I'm telling you, nothing changes. Our hearts are the same. 
Because we're all people who think we're doing what's right in our own eyes when we don't submit to God and his will and his purposes for our life. That's exactly what we're doing. Verse 30, he goes on to say, you warned them to turn back to your law, but they acted arrogantly and would not obey your commands. They sinned against your ordinances. Verse 30, you were patient with them. Mm. Patient for many years. And your spirit warned them through your prophets, but they would not listen. Therefore, you handed them over to the surrounding people. It's not like God kept this hidden. He sent prophets to his people to call them out on it, but they chose not to listen. They chose to ignore the message. And so God would hand them over. That sounds cruel, but didn't he promise to take care of them? Yes, he did, but they kept turning away. So verse 33, look at that. Verse 33 says, you are righteous concerning all that has happened to us. We're not calling you out, God, for being brutal and mean and hateful to us. Everything, God, that you have done to us, you were right. Because you acted faithfully and we have acted wickedly. That might seem like a tough place to be. God could have taken them out. He could have chosen somebody else. He could have chosen a different people group or not chosen anybody at all. He stuck with his choice. He stuck with his choice. That's why he's faithful. He kept his promise. And he was right in every way that he has handled and dealt with Israel and Judah. And what we might see as brutal and hard, Nehemiah is leading the people to see it as God's gracious action. Why? Because there's a remnant. There is a group that has held on and still believe God's faithfulness, even though they have been wicked. And verse 36 and 37, verse 36, Nehemiah starts out and he says, here we are today. Here's where our disobedience has gotten us. We are slaves in the promised land. We are slaves in the land that you gave our ancestors. We are slaves in the land that you gave to us so we could enjoy its fruit and its goodness. Here we are. This is where we've gotten ourselves. Its abundant harvest goes to the kings you've set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies, our livestock as they please. God, we are in great distress. That's how they arrived at the point where this story picks up. In Nehemiah chapter one, we see they're in exile because of their disobedience. This was God's judgment. And yet here God has called Nehemiah, whose name means the Lord comforts. Isn't that appropriate? They're, in, they're disgraced and they're in trouble, and yet God has chosen his leader, whose name means the Lord comforts. A man who's born in Persia, serves as the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. That's no small task, by the way. If someone is trying to assassinate the king and take him out, and they decide to try to poison him in his drink, 
Guess who dies first? Nehemiah. It's a trusted position, more trusted than anyone else. The king's life is in Nehemiah's hands. God has positioned him in a very particular place for this time. When he receives the bad news from Jerusalem from his brother, you begin to sense, in fact, verse 4, he says, I sat down and I wept. He's mourning for a place that he has not put eyes on, but he knows it's home. He knows it's home. The walls are down. The gates are burned. There's low morale. There's no protection from outside enemies. What was once a great and mighty and powerful city is in ruins, left for the landfill. Well, what about the city walls? Well, the walls protected them. They offer protection, just kind of like our military power that we have as a nation. It protects us. Outsiders know it's here, and if they poke the sleeping giant, she'll awake and be angry. Same kind of mindset. The walls are there, but without the walls, there's no certainty of safety. And without protection, there would be very limited commerce. Why, why try to work or build or do anything when an army's just going to come in and wipe it all out? So they, there's no hope. These people were in need of hope. The city walls, not just the physical walls, but they also carry along with it a symbolic meaning for us. Because we can see those walls... Symbolic of the hearts of God's people. That's their spiritual condition. Their hearts are broken down. Their lives are in ruin. They are nowhere closely connected at all with God. Can we connect with that? Absolutely we can connect with that. We we as the church now carry that, that calling to make God's name known to the nations, to make God famous, to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. We carry that task now. And yet we can be just like Israel and Judah. We can be just like them and we can make idols out of anything. Look around. You'll find something to make an idol out of. We've always been that way. We can make an idol out of our heritage. We can make an idol out of our our history as a church. We can make an idol out of the future. We can make an idol out of our our location or our our name. We can make an idol out of our denomination. I've seen churches make an idol out of the color of the carpet. Hey, I mean, where else do you get to go worship with palm trees on the carpet? I mean, we got it. You guys picked it. You did it right. That's what I'm saying. Feel like you're at the beach every Sunday in here. It's cool. I've seen churches make idols out of a piano. I've seen churches make idols out of worship music and style. I've seen churches make idols out of choir robes. (laughs) I've seen churches make idols out of what version of scripture is the pastor using. I've seen idols made out of a lot of things. As parents, we make idols out of our children. So easy, so easy. We can make idols out of anything. 
we are no different than Israel and Judah. And when we think about the walls of Jerusalem being torn down, we might need to take a deeper look inside. And just as we read that they were in great trouble and disgrace, would God show us in our heart where we are in trouble and disgrace? Because we have made an idol out of something that really is nothing because it's not God. Certainly, we walk in every Sunday with our different situations, our different baggage, we might call it, our own, our own life circumstance that we're into right now and might, might even have a, an absence of hope. <clears throat> well, let me challenge you to see that absence of hope in that you are not looking to God but rather you are looking to an idol. You're looking to an idol to provide you hope, hope that it cannot provide. You're looking for that idol to provide you hope because that which you've made into an idol, that which you've given your heart to, it will never be able to provide hope because it's powerless. It is impossible with your idol, but it is possible with God. This story isn't necessarily about walls fully. I think the most important part is the restoration of the heart of God's people. Because to rebuild the walls, you must first hear, see, and understand there is a great need and remember how did we get to the place we're in. Oh, yeah, that's right. We were unfaithful to God. We were disobedient to God. And he told us it was coming and we arrogantly refused to believe him and thought our way was better. Friend, let me tell you that there is hope. There is hope because of Jesus Christ. That story that we're in in Nehemiah, God continued to move along and Christ came just as he said he would, just as he promised just as he promised Abraham would be a blessing to the nations, that blessing came in Jesus Christ. And just as God will restore the hope of his people through Nehemiah and Ezra, he does the same for us through Jesus Christ. Now, there are some things about Nehemiah's life and his position in this moment that I want to share with you. And I want you to know that for us, those things are found, these things are found in Christ. Because the first one is his life, your life. Life is the condition that distinguishes a vital uh, functioning being from something that is dead. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are dead in our sin. We may be breathing, we may have a heartbeat physically, but spiritually we are dead. The walls are torn down. In verse 4 he wrote, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love, sound familiar? Sounds exactly what, like Nehemiah was leading the people to respond in their confession. God is faithful. God is, has a great love. God is rich in mercy. God is merciful. Because God is rich in mercy, verse 5 he says, he has made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. Life comes when you trust in Jesus Christ, 
Hope comes when you put your trust in Jesus Christ and you repent of your sin and you confess Jesus as Lord of your life and Savior. And now you are turned in the right direction and your heart is right with God. You're a right standing before God. And from there, he calls you to be available, just like Nehemiah. Now, to be available means handiness. It's the quality of being at hand when needed. When God calls, you say, here I am, send me. Paul wrote in Acts chapter 20, excuse me, Luke wrote, Paul, uh, Luke quoted Paul saying, I'll get it right here in a minute. He said this, I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Friend, when God sets out to restore you, he brings life. He also brings this calling to be available, to be at hand when he calls you and to say, here I am. I consider my life of no value. My purpose is to finish the course that Christ Jesus has laid out in front of me. From availability, we move into usability, being able to serve. Do you understand what a great pleasure and joy and privilege it is to serve the God of the universe through Jesus Christ? Oh, that God would use my heart, my my hands, and my feet to, to bless the nations with the gospel. Paul wrote to the Colossians, whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people. You serve the Lord Christ. Well, pastor, I don't stand in the pulpit every week. You don't have to. Stand in the classroom. Stand in the office. Stand checking folks out at the grocery store. Stand with folks at the feed store. Wherever God has placed you, there you are. Be used of that. Be able and be used by God for his service. And we see that in Nehemiah. As God calls Nehemiah out, he has placed Nehemiah in a position. These are the the principles we can just quickly pick up from Nehemiah, that God gives you a position. Nehemiah had three, cupbearer, builder, governor. God put him in all three places. He was appointed by God for that. But listen. God gives you that same kind of uh, position in the spirit of God that he has given you spiritual gifts. He has given you what you need in that position to serve him. I firmly believe God has called me and my family here to serve with you, to serve with your staff, our staff, his team for Coastal Oaks, which you are a part of, to continue to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are positioned just like Nehemiah was positioned as the cupbearer, the closest advisor to the king. God positioned him so that Jerusalem would be repurposed, rebuilt, restored. All of that takes time, takes commitment, and takes faithfulness and obedience to walk as God calls us. Now, that wall is gonna be rebuilt in just 52 days. It's a miracle. Not only does he give us purpose, uh, excuse me, not only does he give us position, but he also gives us purpose. God's purpose was moving the story along, restoring his people, and eventually here comes Jesus, which is the big part, Jesus Christ. He comes on the scene. Still today, we carry that purpose of sharing the name of Jesus with those around us. That is our purpose. In Christ, our life is no longer our own. 
For we have been bought with a price. It's not, it's not about my agenda any longer. It's about the agenda of Jesus Christ. It's about his kingdom agenda and fulfilling his purposes. He told his disciples in Luke chapter nine, if anyone would come after he, me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Paul wrote, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. You get the picture. We have a purpose and our purpose is the purpose of Christ. In Christ, my life ceases to be mine. My life is now consumed with the most important purpose, which is to bring God glory and to make his glory known to all people. Finally, God gives you passion. What are you passionate about? God has placed passion within you. Let me ask it this way. What is it that fires you up? What is it? I'm not talking about when the Aggies win and the Horns lose, okay? That's not where I'm going with that. <clears throat> or when one team wins the World Series and another doesn't. <laughs> Sorry, man. I'm a child of TBS. I'm a child of the 80s and 90s. Small town South Texas. We didn't have all those big, big city Houston channels to watch the Strohs. I'm Sorry. Sorry. You had to have something to not like about me, right? All right, there you go. Now you have it. You have your ammunition. Okay. No. What is it about Christ Jesus that fires you up? What is it? What lights your fire? What has God given you a heart for? That's where your passion is. And you're like, I don't know. Then get in his word and find out what God's passion is. Because what his passion is ought to be our passion as well. The transition in Nehemiah's heart comes from God's passion for his people. He made a promise and he keeps his promises. Nehemiah saw that and Nehemiah is called out to help restore God's people. I pray as we walk through this the next couple of weeks that the places and people that God has chosen to put into your life, that you would see he has done so, so that you can take that life-saving message of Christ to them. And that that life-saving message will be our passion and will be our heart. I pray over the next coming weeks that you will see about your life, you will think about your life, your availability, your usability for God. What is that going to look like? Well, I hope it's challenging. I hope it's too big. I hope it's too great. I hope it requires humility because that means we're going to then depend on God. I pray that we will see how passionate God is about people, how passionate God is about seeing people transformed by his word through faith in Jesus Christ. What passion has God given you? What does it look like for Coastal Oaks and the position of where God has put us in Rockport? and Aransas County in the Coastal Bend? What is God doing with Coastal Oaks? We need to be praying about that. How has God positioned your family, your home, your employment, your school? How has God positioned you? And then what kind of faithfulness how are you walking in faithfulness? How's your obedience and humility? Lots of questions we need to be thinking about and praying for because ultimately, 
God is the God who will always build back the hearts of his people. Just like he called Nehemiah, he calls us. He calls us to rise up. Rise up and worship. Rise up and serve. Rise up and pray. Rise up and give. Rise up and share. To simply rise up. Above all else, I pray that if you are here this morning and you have not taken the first step to receive Christ, to trust him by faith, that you would take that step this morning. Today, God says, I love you, and I gave my son for you so that if you would believe in him, you would not perish, but you would have eternal life. God offers you today that repurposed, restored life in Jesus Christ. As we come to our time of invitation, with every head bowed and every eye closed, the praise team is going to come back and lead us for a few minutes in one more song. But during this time, if, you, if that is where you are this morning and you sense God is leading you to receive Christ, to trust him by faith and confess your sin and to receive the forgiveness and to walk in a new life, He's calling you to rise up. Then if you would do three simple things this morning that it'll change your life. One, admit to God that you're a sinner. Two, believe in Jesus Christ as God's son and receive the forgiveness from your sin. Three, confess Jesus as Savior and Lord of your life. Then my friend, you this morning would be saved and have a new life.